So it's been a few weeks since we have been in Zephaniah, and we have made it through chapter 2, verse 3, and I'm hoping to make it into chapter 3 today, um, and we'll review quickly, uh, but I will be honest with you that chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, uh, I have sort of considered the flyover zone of Zephaniah, uh, and uh, when, when I first read the book and when I first studied uh, this book, this was sort of the area of the book that you didn't really care much about, didn't really pay much attention to, uh, and I am repenting publicly uh, before you for that sentiment, uh, because it is absolutely not the flyover zone uh, of the book of Zephaniah or of Scripture in any way. Um, it is uh, God's plan of redemption for you and me. Uh, and so I'm embarrassed that I even considered it such. Um, but just by way of review, uh, in chapter 1, uh, we see uh, God unraveling creation uh, or reversing creation. Uh, in the first couple of verses, uh, we see... Uh, uh, God's covenant wrath poured out uh, related to Abraham's uh, covenant in verses uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. Um, and uh, we see then that, uh, that we work through all the way up to the Mosaic Covenant uh, towards the end of chapter 1 uh, with the day of trumpet and alarm, uh, a day of darkness and gloominess. Um, uh, we see all of God's covenants, uh, all of God's covenants and the wrath associated with those covenants uh, brought to the front. And then we get to the call to repentance at the beginning of chapter 2, which we went over three weeks ago now. And Zephaniah then turns to the nations around Israel. And he begins, uh, he begins in verse 4 of chapter 2 and works systematically around uh, the various areas around, uh, the, around the people of Israel. So I'm going to start in... Chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and work through uh, the end of chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the, Lord's sacrif- before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod by noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the house of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. 
I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capital of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely. They said in their heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. How shall she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. So, it is easier for us, from the New Testament or New Covenant perspective, to associate ourselves with the Abrahamic Covenant. We see ourselves, and we are truly children of Abraham, uh, but that is not the way that Israel would have seen us. We would have been seen as Gentiles, people that were outside of the promises of God. And uh, we need to remember that Judah was looking for a king. They were looking for the king that would rule. They were looking for Messiah. And the promises associated with Messiah were also tied to the land. And so even in the midst of this judgment on the other nations, we need to recognize that there is a focus on the land because of God's promises associated with the land itself. So in verses verses 4 through 7, Zephaniah looks toward the Philistines to the west. Uh, And there are four major cities that are called out here that will be abandoned, devastated, and uprooted. Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod by noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. These are the four major Philistine cities. This is basically saying that the Philistines, who have been at war with God's people for centuries at this point, the Philistines will be destroyed. All of their major cities will be done. There's a couple of interesting things going on in history, and I'm not a huge history person, but it's important to understand that at the time that Zephaniah wrote this, uh, that the city of Ashdod was being besieged at this very moment uh, by uh, Symmeticus of Egypt. Uh, And the siege lasted for 29 years. It was from 640 to 611. And God says in verse 4 here that he will destroy Ashdod by noontime. So that is a picture that 
that Judah would have recognized and said, God is the, this city that's under siege for 30 years, God's going to destroy them by noontime. That's the desolation. That's the, the scale of the desolation that we're talking about here uh, with the Philistines. But then Zephaniah begins to focus on specific areas and where they are occupied in the world. Um, so he goes from the specific cities to the seacoast in particular. <clears throat> this was a flourishing commercial center. Um, in verse 6 in particular, the seacoast will be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. There is a hint of restoration or a hint of redemption in this, in the midst of this utter desolation. Ashdod by noontime, God is now saying that shepherds will occupy this land. Well, what is significant about that for Judah is that this very land was land that was promised to the people of God. So the Abraham, a shepherd, was promised this land in Genesis 15. And now God is saying, I will make that land. And shepherds will occupy that land. I know you're not supposed to cry about shepherds, but... <laughs> But the significant part of this is that God's prom- God is faithful to his own word and he is faithful to his promises. And so he is, um, he is bringing about what he promised to Abraham in, in Genesis, especially as it relates to the land. So this flourishing commercial center would be brought to nothing and shepherds would inhabit this land. They're driven out because they're occupying a portion of the land that was promised to God's people. So just, it's Joshua 1 verse 4 where this land is specifically promised. From the wilderness, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So there's a hint of redemption in this. The, the idea of a remnant is introduced, a remnant of God's people, uh, where God has been faithful to his promises. He will bring about this people and they will inhabit this land. A very small portion will inhabit this land uh, that he had promised to Abraham. Uh, at the very end of this section... In verse 7, I'll I'll read all of verse 7. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. Um, This is something that would resonate with Judah uh, because as God's people came into the promised land. They were continually given houses that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant. They would eat the fruit of the vine that they did not cultivate. Uh, And so all throughout the Old Testament, this is the idea of God's provision for his people. And here God is telling Judah uh, that that they will live in the houses of Ashkelon, that they will lie down in the evening. These are places that they did not build and that they had not inhabited. And at the very end, and, uh, and the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. This has a twofold meaning and can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Uh, the idea of returning their captives would have an immediate, uh, would have an immediate, uh, 
understanding, uh, uh, as soon as they were taken away by Babylon in 586, um, because uh, it would be the promise of, of God returning his people, the returning of the captives. Uh, but it can also be understood as returning their fortunes. Uh, so this restitution is rooted in the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 30. So if you turn with me, Deuteronomy 30. We are going to jump around just uh, a little bit today because I want you to see all of the symbolism, maybe not even all of the symbolism, but some of the symbolism that Zephaniah is referring to. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I have commanded you to you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord will, your God, will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the furthest parts under heaven from the Lord, from the Lord, from there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live." So this is the idea that is echoed here in Zephaniah, the idea of God returning their captives. And truly, even in chapter 3, verse 20, he brings this up again. At that time, I will bring you back. Even at the time I gather you, I will give you fame and praise among the peoples of the earth. When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. So this is how Zephaniah closes out the book with this idea of returning their captives. It's important to see that this is God's work. You remember in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather yourselves together. And last time, three weeks ago now, we talked about the idea here being that uh, this word gather is the word that's used throughout Scripture of, of gathering kindling for a fire. Um, and God is telling them through Zephaniah, these people, to gather themselves as if to be burned for destruction. And very quickly after that, uh, God is saying, I will gather you. Um, not for destruction this time, though, but for restitution. I will gather you and I will return your captives. I will return your fortunes. So as we move into verse 8, uh, we should consider the relationship between judgment and redemption. Um, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah. So the people of Moab and Ammon are actually intimately related to Israel or the people of God. Um, the people of Moab and Ammon 1,200 years earlier find their uh, history and their lineage 
uh, with Lot. Uh, and the people of Moab and Ammon are the people that came from Lot's incestual relations with his daughters in Genesis 19. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture that these people in particular would recognize because Lot's fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah uh, is a part of their story and a part of how they became these two peoples. And throughout the Old Testament, uh, there is animosity between uh, Ammon, uh, Moab, and the people of God. Uh, So this second wave of judgment looks at the blood relatives of Israel uh, instead of aliens that are set against Israel. So we started out with, uh, with the Philistines, alien to the people of God, but now we're looking at blood relatives of the people of God. Salvation begins to play uh, a significant role in this devastation. So you'll remember uh, the talking donkey in Numbers 22. Balak was a Moabite king, and he sent Balaam to curse Israel as they encamped along the banks of the Jordan, and God sent a a talking donkey to speak with Balaam. Uh, Nahash was an Ammonite king, and he sought to bring reproach on Israel by poking out the eye of the people of Jabesh-Gilead in 1 Samuel 11. Hannah, the son of Nahash, shaved the heads, beards, and buttocks of David's messengers in 2 Kings 10. I'm only listing a few here. Tobiah, the Ammonite, mocked Nehemiah's wall, saying that even a fox would break down his wall. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah 40 documents how, after the fall of Judah to Babylon, the king of Ammon commissioned the death of the provincial governor, Gedaliah. And the story, uh, I think, is most clearly illustrated. The animosity between uh, Ammon and Moab is most clearly illustrated uh, in Amos 1, uh, where Amos pronounces judgment on Ammon because they ripped the pregnant woman open who was with child just to enlarge their territory. And that's the idea. That's the animosity that is between these blood relatives of God's people uh, and uh, and God's people themselves. Um, so here Calvin says, There is not so much bitterness in a hundred deaths as in one reproach, especially when the wicked licentiously triumph and do this with the applauding consent of the whole world. And then all difference between good and evil is confounded, and good conscience is, as it were, buried. So I think it is worth, for a moment, reflecting upon the reproaches of Christ, as these are the people that gave the most scaling reproaches to God's people in their day. Uh, Think for a brief moment on Christ and how he was mocked. And I just read it with my children this week, uh, how Christ was mocked, how they put a purple robe on him to mock his kingship and a crown of thorns, and he was spat on. Uh, That is the type of animosity uh, that is illustrated here. And yet at the end of verse 9, we see that the residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So victory is the Lord's uh, in, in the end uh, with this. Uh, it's interesting here in, in verse 9 uh, where uh, God through Zephaniah says, therefore as I live, says the Lord of hosts, this as I live concept is used 20 times in the Old Testament almost exclusively to invoke covenant cursing. Uh, but God at the same time 
Uh, Yahweh of hosts is the word here. And by the way, Lord, uh, throughout most of Zephaniah, is the word Yahweh, um, which is God's covenant name. Uh, but Yahweh of hosts here, God still delights to identify himself uh, with his people. Uh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So as he's pronouncing this judgment, um, he is identifying himself with his own people that he saves, with his own remnant. Um, Ammon and Moab uh, were both situated on the Dead Sea in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're still located in the same... Just a thought and, and a, yeah. a question. Would it be right to think about Moab and Ammon as apostate nations because they were once connected and with Abraham and under presumably under the covenant with Abraham and then left, which to me kind of brings a little bit more significance to the fact that he's promising to the remnant and the residue, the people that did remain faithful, and so these are particularly covenantal curses to them. Yeah, I think absolutely. Much deeper animosity between them. Absolutely. Um, you know, they were not the people of God themselves, but they were they were intimately related. So there is there is a sense in which they are apostate nations, um, and especially as we look at this gathering together of the nations uh, in in this section. So yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so. Uh, flip back over to Deuteronomy 29. We just read Deuteronomy 30, but the section right before that, I told you there was a lot of Deuteronomy in Zephaniah, and I promise you I'm not even giving you the bulk of it. Deuteronomy 29. So what we see here is the fulfillment of the covenant cursings of Deuteronomy 29 in this section against Moab and Ammon. Verse tw- uh, chapter 29, Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. The whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which... Which he made, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. So these curses from Deuteronomy 29 are fulfilled in this section against Moab and Ammon. Um, the grace of God must intervene. This is the message to Judah. The grace of God must intervene for Judah because their fate is the same as Moab and Ammon. I'm going to read. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 10. Unless you want to. Matthew 10, verse 11. Whatever city or town you enter, inquire uh, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words when you depart from the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for your city. It shall be more tolerable in that great day 
for Sodom and Gomorrah than those who reject Jesus Christ. And that is the message here that Judah sees. But it's out of Sodom and Gomorrah that we are saved, that Christ saves us. Sodom and Gomorrah are used variously throughout Scripture to illustrate the wrath of God poured out. The last mention of which is in Revelation 11. And I won't make you turn there. Uh, you can It's verse 8 to go look at it later. Uh, but Sodom in particular is called the city in which Christ was crucified. So you see all of this coming together. God's wrath poured out the city in which Christ was crucified. Now we know that it wasn't actually Sodom. Sodom had already been destroyed. But that is the idea that is being brought up here uh, in, in bringing out Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that, uh, that these people are to receive this, this wrath. So as we move into verse 11, uh, we begin to see uh, that all of the nations are called together. Now there are multiple calling of the nations. There's a calling of the nations at the end of chapter 1. There's a calling of the nations here in the middle of chapter 2. And there's a calling of the nations in the middle of chapter 3. Um, And God is working out His redemptive purposes within the context of history in this. In a sense, this is the Great Commission of the Old Testament. I made that up. So if that's wrong, I made it up. I'm just confessing it to you now. But it's God's calling of the people together. The Lord will be awesome to them, for He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. The people shall worship Him, each one from his own place. Each one from his place, indeed, all the shores of the nations. So this is an idea uh, that is not common in the Old Testament. The worshiping people in their own places. The worship of God has always been centered around Jerusalem. The wor- it's where God dwells with his people. And now here in verse 11, we see that God's intent is to have people worship him each from his own place. There are lots of places in Scripture where uh, people are called to Jerusalem to worship God. Other nations are brought in to worship God. But, but in this verse, it's God being worshipped in various places. The more common imagery within the prophets especially is nations coming into Israel to worship. There's a brief mention here of the Ethiopians or Cush. Uh, what's interesting about this, uh, there, well, there's several interesting things. Cush um, or Ethiopia uh, was much smaller than Egypt. And Egypt has much more of an intimate history with Israel than Cush does. Um, there, there, although there is history with Cush also. I believe Moses, Moses married a Cushite. Um, but we have one verse related to this people from very far south. Um, and, and it's not Egypt, uh, which would have been the obvious choice, the mighty nation. If God was going to show forth uh, his, his wrath, why not pick Egypt to, to pour out his wrath on? Um, but instead here we have Cush. Um, God doesn't just remember the mighty in judgment, but he also remembers the lowly and the small in judgment, I believe is part of the message in this. Uh, But we also see that God remembers this far off and distant land in his redemption. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So... 
Uh, in chapter 3, he's remembering Ethiopia. He's remembering this far-off, distant land, uh, this lowly people, much more lowly than, uh, than Egypt is. Uh, now, there's also something else interesting uh, for why Cush may be brought up rather than Egypt. If you turn back to verse 1 of chapter 1, in the genealogy as it is presented, um, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the, in the very first lesson we talked about uh, the fact that it is very unusual to have a genealogy this long for a prophet. Uh, and I, I, there are only a few where fathers are listed and nobody else is listed. So this is unique amongst the prophets uh, to, have, uh, to have this many people listed. Um, and, and while there is no way to know for certain uh, the connection of Zephaniah's father to the country of Cush, uh, is highly probable. Now, the consequence of this is significant uh, because if Zephaniah was a Cushite himself, being the son of a Cushite, um, Zephaniah would be considered outside of the people of God according to Deuteronomy uh, because uh, the other nations... The Egyptians, in particular, uh, could not be considered a part of the people of God to the second and third generation. And so here he is, I'm sorry, to the third generation. And here Zephaniah is a second generation, potentially a second generation Cushite. So think about that possibility in the context of God bringing about his redemptive purposes for the nations. If Zephaniah is actually on the outside, a Gentile like you and me, uh, being called as a prophet uh, uh, in, this, in this context. So, but again, I, I don't know and we don't know, but that is, uh, this is a concept that is discussed as the potential for, uh, for why Ethiopia or Cush is mentioned here. Um, and brought up rather than Egypt, and also, uh, but also justify why the long uh, lineage provided in chapter 1, verse 1. So, uh, Zephaniah may be utilizing his own ancestry to illustrate the breadth of destruction, but also the magnitude of God's saving power, even to the Gentiles. So significantly, then, we move to uh, the north, which is Assyria. And I will stretch out, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, make Nineveh a desolation. And Assyria, at this point in time, is by far uh, the most foreboding um, enemy of the people of God. Uh, Assyria, at this point in time, uh, basically controls the world. Uh, and so it's significant then in 586 when Babylon comes, they come and destroy Assyria. Um, they come and take Assyria. Uh, so Assyria was the most threatening em- enemy of Judah, and Nineveh was its most powerful city. So to place this in history, Jonah was about 100 years earlier. So the repentance that we saw in Jonah um, has not borne good fruit three or four generations later. 
because the city of Nineveh here is specifically called out. So uh, this prophecy finds fulfillment in 612. We know from history uh, that Nineveh was destroyed in 612. And Nineveh wasn't just taken. Uh, Nineveh was wiped off the map in 612. Uh, So 200 years later, uh, Zenon walked past Nineveh, this is in 401, and said that there was not a trace of its existence. So the record from history is that Nineveh was utterly destroyed, uh, utterly taken out. And as the people passed by, you'll notice here this rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in their heart, I am it and there is none beside me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Um, People walk past Nineveh and mock and blaspheme. Very similarly, in fact, to the way that they wagged their, uh, wagged their heads at Christ in Matthew 27. And those who passed by and blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and building it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. For those that are in Christ, our Lord assumes this awful judgment for us. So we see here that God is working redemption even in the midst of the surrounding people around uh, around Israel, around Judah, and specifically around Jerusalem. And as we move into chapter 3, I'm just going to read it and we'll have to deal with chapter 3 next time. Um, the first eight verses of chapter 3 focus specifically on Israel. And you might say to yourself, if you remember from several weeks ago, we've already pronounced judgment on Israel. Uh, there's a significant portion of chapter 1 that deals directly with Israel. So why are we looking at Israel again? Uh, and the, the reason is... Um, All of God's covenants with His people, uh, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, are dealt with through the end of chapter 1. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we begin to deal with the Davidic covenant. And there are two promises, two significant promises, that are associated with the Davidic covenant. Uh, And it is related to the line of David, that there would be a Davidic king. And and the second one is associated with the place, the people where God dwells with His people, Israel. And so, I'll go ahead and read the beginning of chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She will not draw near to her God. So this is personal now at at this point. This is where God dwells with his people. The princes in her midst are roaring lions. The judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst he will do no unrighteousness every morning he brings his justice to light he never fails but the unjust knows no shame 
Now it turns to first person. I have cut off the nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations and my assembly of kingdoms and to pour on them my indignation, my fierce anger, All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So we don't leave without hope. Verse 9, Then I will restore to the people a pure language, and they shall call my name the Lord to serve Him with one accord. He goes on from there. So as we close, um, I want to close in prayer, but I want to read, I'm going to pray through a specific passage in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 12, if you want to look on with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise Your name. Though You were angry with us and Your anger is turned away, You comfort us. Behold, God, You are our salvation, and we will trust in You and not be afraid. For Yahweh the Lord is our strength and our song and has become our salvation. Praise you, the Lord. Father, we call upon your name. We declare your deeds among the people. We make mention that your name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for you have done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. We cry out, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in our midst. And Father, we are grateful to You for worship. and We are grateful that You worship with us and You come together and meet with Your people. Prepare our hearts even now as we come to worship You. In Your name we pray. Amen.